Hey, welcome everybody back to Naga Notes Listener Land. We appreciate your followership. We appreciate you downloading our content. It's always super humbling to listen to... Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> it's super humbling to know that people listen to what I have to say. And to the people I interview... And this week's interview is unbelievable. Uh, Jessica Harris, who is a licensed professional counselor out of Maryland, uh, shared a lot of knowledge with me. And you'll know that as you listen through this podcast, you'll you'll notice where I make certain notes and then I, uh, I gosh about how I'm going to steal her insights and, <laughs> and use them in my own life. But that's really what we're all about. We're a, we're about sharing knowledge so that people can go on healing themselves and each other. And uh, ultimately, we just want to make this world better. Some of that is done through our sponsors. And that's not an awkward transition. Audible has a ton of audio content that you should access. If you haven't already, establish your Audible account through Audible. Uh, audibletrial.com slash noggin notes. Uh, it helps them out. It helps you out. It helps us out. Uh, how does it help you out? Well, you get access to their completely unmatched library of content. Audibletrial.com slash noggin notes. You get a free 30 day trial. You get to download something that you want to keep and listen to forever and ever. And you don't even have to give it back if you decide that Audible is not for you. But for 30 days, you get access to everything. AudibleTrial.com slash Nogginotes. And the other sponsor is, of course, the company that I co-own with my co-owner, Lindsay Bell. It's called Zephyr Wellness. Go to ZephyrWellness.org. If you want to reach out to us, email us at info at ZephyrWellness.org or info at Nogginotes.com. And we will take some of your suggestions and make episodes out of them and or incorporate them into our podcast. But... In the meantime, while you're considering what you want to email us about, please enjoy the following podcast with uh, now my friend and colleague, Jessica Harris. We're talking about a lot of things, and I think you'll enjoy it. Have fun. Well, audience, we're back on Noggin Notes, and with us today is Jessica Harris. Hello, Jessica. Hi, how are you? Excellent. Thank you. It's the beginning of another wonderful week. And uh, some transparency for the listening audience. If you, uh, you can't see me, but Jessica can. If you see me shifting in my chair, it's because I got some uh, injections in my back to try to loosen up something that's been plaguing me for a while. So <laughs> it, it's not going to make me like fall asleep or drool or anything, uh, but uh, I, I, I may be a little uncomfortable. <laughs> um I'm going to let you introduce yourself. You are a clinical professional counselor in the Maryland slash Washington DC area, but uh, tell us tell us a little bit more. You got your own practice and and stuff. Yeah, definitely. I started um, practicing in 2018. Um, a lot of my background is comprised of working with um, children and adolescents, and then I moved into family work. Um, I, I worked in community uh, mental health for. Uh, for quite a while, maybe about four to five years. Um, I've worked with children on the autism spectrum as well, um, and some adults there in that area. Um, I've worked with the immigrant community as well, um, so I still do. I still do some work with that in my private practice as well. So I kind of have a little bit of experience, a little all over the place here. <laughs> it's good. It's good for us to to be well rounded in our in our pr- approaches to things and and have a depth of knowledge too. 
I want to, I want to definitely get into some of that stuff because you're the, I did interview an immigration attorney once a couple of years ago uh, about some of the, the struggles that immigrants have. So I want to get into that, but first I want to uh, ask you about the, the work with kids. You said kids and adults, I think struggling with autism. Tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about that. Cause I think it's an often misunderstood diagnosis uh, and con- slash condition uh, help, help the, the audience uh, get a better handle on what that really is. Yeah, absolutely. So um, when I started working up with children, I think they're about between like two to three years old where most of the kids that well, the age range with most of the children that I work with. Um, so it was where I did a lot of like motor skill developments and verbal skills, um, different things like that. Um, and then with some of the kids who are a little bit older, like in elementary school, like around like third grade ish age, um, I did like a lot of social skill development, worked on like self-regulation and things like that. So I know it varies differently from different age groups and different levels of functioning as well. You really have to have a, a truly individualized approach for, for well, yeah. for anything really, but we, we want to be careful not to paint with a broad brush. Um, do you have any sort of loose conclusions that you can draw about um, what parents should pay attention to that may be on the spectrum versus just normal childhood inattention, rambunctiousness, impatience, that kind of thing? Um, It has been some time for me since I have worked with that population. Um, But from what I do, what I can remember is like, especially I would say like pay attention to some of the social skills. If you have like a, child who might be in like kindergarten and moving forward, um, moving upward from there. Um, a lot of behaviors can be interpreted as defiant, um, and oppositional. And that's not really always the case for, you know, children in general. So I I think that's one of the signs that I've, I've noticed in some of the clients that I've worked with, um, especially with me, um, suspecting that they may be on the, um, on the autism spectrum and, for, you know, getting a recommendation for getting tested. Um, with smaller children, you really want to notice like what their the verbal verbal skills um, are really looking like. Um, so that's that's one of the signs that um, I've I've learned to notice in the population as well. So yeah. So so if if there's a parent out there who says you know I think I think my kid may may have autism or uh, some, we've gotten rid of the other diagnoses from when we moved from the DSM four to the DSM five. So you might hear things like Asperger's disorder, Rett's disorder there. Uh, those are, those are now lumped together in a spectrum. Uh, if you're listening and you're unfamiliar with this. Uh, so we just collectively call it all, you know, autism spectrum disorder, but what is it? What's, what's a parent do? You see, you mentioned testing and, and in Nevada, I know it's very hard to get psychological testing or psychometric testing for that. Um, is that the first step or is the first step just to consult with a, with a professional like us, who's, you know, maybe got a, a license to do mental health service, but maybe not some of the motor skill stuff you mentioned, just like start first and see if we get a, a like a, I guess an accurate pr- picture of it. Um, I would say to look for a professional who specializes in whatever concern that you have. And not this, this is just goes broader than autism spectrum. Um, because that per- that professional is really going to be have a strong background or training in that particular concern. So with autism spectrum, if you are a parent who's just you know suspecting that your child may be on the spectrum and you're noting- noticing some developmental deficits, um, you'll want to seek out a, a psychologist who specializes 
in autism spectrum disorders and testing for this particular population. That's great wisdom. I, I love that you said that. It's uh, irrespective of whatever it is that you're seeking, because I, I think we encounter that a lot in the substance abuse community where it's like, I need somebody who specializes in addiction, right? Um, but we don't necessarily look for people who are who have specialties in other types of uh, disordered behavior. But that that is a really good point to make. Um, as much as we, we think we can do it all, uh, <laughs> there are those of us among us who uh, do it better <laughs> than some others. And you want to start with those people. Uh, certainly, you know, access matters. If you're in a rural community and there's one clinician, you probably go to that one clinician and then work up. But I appreciate you pointing that out. Um, how'd you, how'd you move from community, maybe explain community mental health too, for those of us who don't know, but how'd you move from community mental health into private practice slash owning your own business? Well, with, um, in working with, um, autism uh, spectrum population, there is, they apply behavioral analysis as a therapy that's specifically used, uh, as treatment for that. And so I did want to broaden my experience and um, do more different types of counseling. Um, so that's how I got into working in it. I, I was employed with a community agency and did a lot of um, in-home, in-school, and office-based and community-based um, therapy sessions with the, with the clients that I had. So, is, that, is that big out there on the East Coast as far as the in-home and in-school in stuff? We're, we're just barely starting to crack it here, but also we ranked dead last in behavioral health in the country. So we're, we're last to get a lot of things. Is that, is that a big thing? Um, I think so. I think it is. And I think it really depends on which agency, like what their business model looks like as well. Um, not, not every agency does a lot of home, does home-based work. There are some who do. So I think it really depends, um, you know, where you're working and, you know, what, what your ideal population is looking like. In my experience, the people who, uh, really qualify for home-based services are ones who are highly impacted, uh, socioeconomic, uh, demographic who, you know, transportation's really tough. Um, maybe they find it difficult just to leave because their, you know, anxiety is so crippling or whatever it may be. Um, but, but I've found the school-based stuff really useful because you're, you're surrounded by a lot of eyeballs, uh, and you, you taught school also. And, um, I think, I think it'd be useful to hear from your perspective, just how powerful that can be, the in-home or the in-school in uh, provision of services. Go ahead and expand on that if you would. Yeah, absolutely. I actually really, really love school-based work. Um, <laughs> I wish for professional counselors we would have more access in being able to do that, um, especially in the United States. I think social work is more of a widely recognized profession. And, you know, a lot of the clinical skills that counselors and social workers do do overlap. And so um, there's more access in that area. So I kind of get jealous of the school social workers. Right, right. <laughs> I know that um, school-based therapist positions have become more, um, I guess, more popular um, over time. So I am seeing more of those positions um, um, open up, which is a good thing. So I'm really happy that I'm seeing that. Um, but with school-based work, I love it because it makes therapy more accessible for children. Um, I can say, you know, prior to COVID, children spend, you know, significantly more time in school than you do at home during, you know, a work week. And so being able to work with children during that time in a setting that they spend a, a lot of their time in is really important. And it helps to really normalize a lot of the skills that 
is being taught in therapy, are being taught in therapy, being able to normalize them to the school setting and being able to further develop their social skills and emotional regulation, things like that. Is, is funding an issue? Do, do they fund you um, through the school or do you, do you do insurance? I know you mostly do cash pay, right? Uh, yes, uh, I do mostly cash pay. Um, there is funding available for it. So there, there have like been different grants that have been um, different um, organizations are able to get um, for providers or organizations that are able to accept um, Medicaid here in the States. Um, that's really like a, a, a great pathway for being able to provide services um, for underserved populations as well. So I'm always curious uh, talking with providers from uh, different regions um, working with Medicaid in Nevada is pretty challenging. It's become less so recently, but I want to know, do you work with the Medicaid in Maryland? Uh, and if so, how has it been? If not, why not? Yeah, definitely. Um, unfortunately, I'm unable to accept Medicaid because I'm a professional counselor. So um, the only professionals in the United States who are able to accept Medicaid are um, physicians, psychologists, and social workers. That's got so. that's interesting because we, we do it here. Like I'm a marriage and family therapist. So I have professional counselors here and we, we're all in network with Medicaid. Um, but it's, it, it's hard to get in network, but it sounds like for you guys, it's not even allowed. That's fascinating to me. Yeah, I think so for professional counselors who may, who can bill under Medicaid, they're probably with an organization that can bill Medicaid. And so the onboarding credentialing process with that looks different than for me being in private practice. And because I would just, I would be have to panel with commercial insurances. Would you do it if you could? Yes. Fascinating. That's, <laughs> you know, and this is just, I think, another overall testimony to how little we've invested into the mental health field, right? And, you know, yeah. how many barriers are there, not just to care, but to professionals who want to provide the care and aren't, aren't able to for whatever reason? That's, we got to fix that. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely a barrier in that aspect from the provider side. Um, you, uh, I, I, I saw, I think on your website that you, you accept TRICARE. Do you have a military connection at all? Or is that just something that you wanted to do? Um, it's something I wanted to do. I'm listed as an out of network provider with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I have done some work with, mil- with some military, I've, I've, I've had some clients in the military or family members of military. So that's something I did, you know, wanted to be able to do and just being able to, you know, reach different people, who, you know, who need services. Yeah. Yeah. That was a, a hiccup for us too here for a while. The panels were just closed for like four years and you know, yeah. they're saying, no, sorry, uh, we've got enough providers. And we look around and we're like, really, <laughs> really? <laughs> so I see a lot of people struggling. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll just shift gears into, into one of your specialties. Uh, you work with, um, uh, in the, forgive me, I don't know the terms of pre, pre partum and postpartum folks mm-hmm. is that is that right yeah yes yeah. so, i guess my word to encapsulate all of it is perinatal perinatal okay yeah there yeah. it is you gotta get my termina- terminology correct if i'm gonna host this podcast um talk, talk about that what, what are some unique challenges that that pregnant moms and and uh, dads who have pregnant moms face and uh how do you how do you work with that what's unique about that particular uh presentation in in session i guess um, I think some of my unique work is just being able to know how to approach treatment with with this population. Um, for example, 
with, uh, especially with moms who are pregnant and or recently had a child, um, there are certain screening assessments that I administer um, usually on a quarterly basis just to measure the progress um, in treatment with the moms that I work with. What, what are some of those? Because we got some clinicians who listen to this too, and we like to learn. Absolutely. Um, the um, Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale is one. Um, the PHQ-9 is one, and that can be used either or with the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale. Um, both of those obviously measure depression and emotional distress. Um, then there is the GAD-7 that measures anxiety. Um, so those, and those are all free. So you can go to phqscreeners.com and be able to access those. And I know that some, um, electronic, um, medical records, um, are also uh, have those in their system and you can just use a lot. I think simple practice is one that has one as part of, um, uh, their, their EHR that you can just use as part of a template and send electronically to the moms. Um, so those are some that we use. And then, there are some other standardized uh, tests that you can obviously use, especially if you're trained as a psychologist. Those are some other, other, other ones that testing that you can use also to do some further assessment as well. Take, take us through what the common, um, I guess, struggle or, or presentation is that you see with uh, people who are pregnant versus not. Um, I think it really depends so some moms i've had come to me and say that they're they're more irritable um they cry a little bit more often or become upset about things that normally wouldn't upset them um i think one of the most important questions that we ask especially right after birth is asking moms how much sleep they get Hmm. um sleep is a really lack of sleep is a very is a predictor of being um susceptible to perinatal mood and anxiety disorders um so that's something that we uh, we assess for. Um, we also assess for com- um, community support. So we're looking at the uh, client support system. Um, what I've often tried to help clients with also is assessing what kind of help can they be offered from members of their support system. So, you know, there's tangible help, um, like monetary help or someone who can run errands for them. There's other people who can provide emotional support. Do they have professionals who can provide them with informational support about what they're going through? Um, As some examples of me being assessing their support system, because a lot of that is important. I don't really think that a lot of people or even a lot of moms don't really understand that until they're in a situation and they're like, wow, I think I really need some help with this. I need help with cleaning up around the house. I really want to be able to get more sleep or I just need someone to hold the baby for me. You know, those are a lot of different things that, you know, moms encounter. And if there's not enough of that support, it causes, it's a, it can cause some of, you know, perinatal mood anxiety disorders. Um, sometimes if moms have uh, pre-existing mental health issues um, prior to pregnancy, that makes them susceptible to that during and after pregnancy as well hormonal changes impact, um, uh, you know, mental wellness after, during and after birth as well. Um, so everyone's situation is different. So I, I don't really think there's like one approach to take when it comes to clients in this population. You really just have to take it one case at a time. Did you experience any of that? You, you have a four-year-old. I did. I, <laughs> I, I later learned that I experienced postpartum depression. Yeah. Um, yeah, a lot of time is spent on that. Like I guess in the popular media, you talk postpartum depression, postpartum depression. Then it then it just like gets truncated to postpartum. 
it's like, well, postpartum what? But you mentioned anxiety too. And, and I think yeah, that's a, it's a really important uh, consideration. What do people worry about when right after having a baby or even, even before they have the baby? What are some of the common worries? Um, some things to look for, it can be go as far as um, being ag- agitation, inability to sit still, worrying about the baby and it can, and and I think they're the type of worries that come up for moms. They make sense, but they can also be irrational if that makes sense. Um, more like high alert. It's more about excessive concern about the baby's health or mom's own health, constant worry, racing thoughts, shortness of breath, heart palpitations, um, sleep disturbances, are like our very common anxiety symptoms for this population. Is this happening more these days with uh, the the prevalence of intense scrutiny through social media, the the desire to compete, post everything, look, you know, make sure you're, you know, your baby's doing well as compared with other babies and all that stuff. Like, is this, is it different now than it was 30 years ago? You think? You know, I haven't seen the data on it, to be honest with you, but I can't imagine, especially during COVID, because everyone's been quarantined and been in close quarters for, you know, long periods of time, especially new moms trying to make sure that they're protecting their babies are protected. I can imagine that, um, you know, a lot of these different things are heavily impacting moms. Um, and I try to encourage moms, too, because it's very common, like mom guilt can be very common and comparing your parenting to another mother's parenting um, or your baby's milestones to another baby's milestones or like, Oh mom looks, she looks so happy on here. How, why can I do that? So I think these are things are normal struggles. I'm not sure like how much it's changed as far as like data goes, but I know it's, it's had, it's had to intensify, you know, because of the pandemic. Yeah. And I got to believe that. I mean, one, one of the things that I, try to help people understand is there's this chicken or egg thing between anxiety and depression because they often walk together and sometimes you get so worked up and worried about whatever it is you're worried about that you then slip into depression thinking you'll never get out of it right especially with academics children who you know it's like i gotta i gotta get a's i gotta get a's and then you get a couple of b's and it's like i'll never get an a and then all of a sudden it's like depression's walking but it was preceded by the anxiety how do you how do you work with that like what if somebody's listening like oh my gosh you're describing me what do you do in terms of like dealing with yeah you the, as a clinician like how do you how do you work in that um in that realm i suppose what what things do you say i'm mean, certainly validation is a big part of it but are there uh-huh. common common tips and techniques um definitely so in terms of like anxiety i would say i'm going to lean towards anxiety first that's what we're kind of talking about just to hear a second ago um i like to ask clients i like to do this activity called the control circle and i draw a circle on the page And on the inside of the circle, I put things I can control. And on the outside of the circle, I put things I can't control. And I ask my clients to write down everything that they can think of that they can control, put on the inside and everything they can think of they cannot control and put on the outside of that circle. And that what this activity does just help give them perspective on where they're spending a lot of energy over things that really they're unable to really put a grasp on or, or just or control. (laughs) in essence um and what i often get in response to that is i can control my thoughts i can control myself so everything that you can control really has to do with you and everything you can't control has everything to do with everybody else you're teaching them to let go is what it sounds like 
Yeah, or where to really focus their energy because just, you know, a lot of people are in situations that are really difficult to let go. So I think the goal of that is to really help them cope through it, but cope in a healthy way. So when they're in a situation, I'm like, okay, what about the situation? Do you have control over what can you do? And what is this your best? If this is the best you can do, then keep doing your best. Whatever you can't control, try to divert your attention to what you can control in this situation. Do you get any, just okay. each day as it comes? <laughs> do, do, how, how much yes butting do you get from that? Like yes, but <laughs> I, I can't. I must control this thing. It's my my mother in law who's always pestering me or whatever it is. <laughs> I think that's when I kind of sit back and I'm like, okay, what about this situation is really bothering you? What's has what's had you really thinking about it? And I really help my clients try to break it down because if there's a yes, but there's something to that. And there's a deeper root to something that's really bothering them, or it could be something that's been going ongoing for a long period of time. Okay, let's talk about this. Let's break this down. Look, what can you manage about this particular thing? And that's how we, I kind of tailor my suggestions on how clients should approach their situations from there. So like uh, not necessarily challenging belief systems, but um, mm-hmm. learning to understand where it originates. Sometimes I, I think it's a mixture of both. Um, cause with belief systems, sometimes we get caught up in those cognitive distortions. I should have done this. I could have done that. And I'm like, okay, all right. So that did happen. And I'm validating your feelings about what happened during this time. But right now, what do you feel like is important to focus on? And how do you want to move forward from where you are right now? What do you find the answers are? Sometimes it helps give the client perspective. Okay. Um, I think I want to further develop my coping skills or how should I respond when this person approaches me like this and causes me discomfort or what boundaries do you feel like are important that you need to establish? What do you need help establishing these boundaries? Do you, what can you say yes to? And there's, um, I always say, can you give a partial yes where you can do something, but you may not be able to carry that, see it to, you know, see everything through or fulfill a request mm. from someone else, but you can say here, this is what I can do. So it's like that partial yes. I'm like, okay, and it's okay to say no. What can you say no to? Um, You don't have to go in this situation, but if you do, do you want to bring someone with you or what tools do you need to help you get through this particular situation that you know is going to be difficult for you to face? Yeah, that's really good. But I think boundaries are a big hot topic these days. I see a lot of it on Instagram and um, it's one of those like we understand it because we're highly trained, but then the, the general public is like, yeah, yeah, boundaries. It sounds like a great idea. If only I could. Um, how, I guess, like, how do we bring people to the, to the point where they go, ah, yes, I'm going to implement this and I'm going to mean it. And I'm not going to be held hostage by any sort of emotional warfare that threatens to make me, uh, break it down. What do you, what do you do? What, what's your technique? What do you, what's your favorite way of helping somebody to establish a boundary and maintain it? I would say, how do you want to feel in this situation? I think that's the that's the first thing I start with. How do you want to feel about this particular thing? What do you need to feel the way that you want to feel? You're returning choice to their yeah their behavior patterns. Absolutely, because with boundaries, you feel indebted or obligated to do things when it comes to that. Yeah. So, what my goal is to help my clients release that sense of obligation and help them feel try to help them feel more obligated to themselves than to other people. That's, that's tough to do for some people, especially if they've been raised in a way that um, maybe trained them to be a caretaker for the whole world, you know, something like that. 
Yeah. That's pretty challenging. You you find you find people respond well? Over I think it takes time. It's not something that happens right away because I do get a lot of well, but this, but I have to do this, but I need to do that, or I'm afraid to do this. I'm afraid of and the other side of boundaries, I'm afraid of how the other person is gonna respond to me. Sure. And so I think once I'm able to help my clients work, start working through that fear of how someone else is gonna respond and help them become attuned to more what is what important to them. And sometimes I get a little practice and when they're being able to be more assertive and that feels good, you know, like, okay, I want to feel like that again. So I'm going to keep doing it. It's like that kind of reinforcement for them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let, let's uh, talk about depression for a little bit. Cause um, yeah, you, you mentioned that you, you struggled with it. Um, what was your experience? How'd you get through it? How do you apply that now? Um, my experience was definitely challenging. Um, I didn't have a therapist at the time that I was experiencing postpartum depression. I didn't realize I was, I had experienced it until I got more training in perinatal mental health. And I was like, huh, mm. that was me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like I knew I was depressed, but I didn't realize it was related to as far, as far as me being in during the postpartum period, I was in that one year postpartum range. And so, um, I definitely, I had, I had family and I had friends that were really there that really helped me. Um, I didn't know anyone personally at the time who experienced it. And I had a lot of different dynamics in my personal life going on at the time, which I really think was um, uh, a cause for a lot of how I was feeling. Um, But I did recognize it, I think, maybe like in the middle of my pregnancy, but I tried not to acknowledge it because I knew it would affect the baby, but I didn't, I wasn't aware of how at the time, but I knew it would affect my daughter. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to pretend to be happy and I'm going to try to do a lot of happy things. So I spent a lot of time um, with my friends um, as much as I could. And I did try to, I did have, I did have some social support throughout my pregnancy, which I'm really thankful for. Um, And even afterwards too, uh, my closest friends lived out of state um, but we always stay connected, um, you know, doing the video calls and things like that. And that was really helpful. And then I was able to get therapy and then that, that really boosted things for me after that. I think we, a lot, we, a lot of us do this hindsight is 2020 thing. Right. And so if you look back now, you go, Oh geez, I wish I'd, I, I wish I'd recognized those signs back then or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. how, how would you talk to people who may be, in that state where they're sort of in touch with it, sort of not, not sure what to do. Um, like what would you say to look for and then act upon? I would notice if you're, if you're feeling overwhelmed, if you are noticing that you don't feel as emotionally connected to your baby that as you would like to be. And it's the point what's really uncomfortable for you. Um, If you're feeling like you're unable to take care of yourself or your family, these are some of the symptoms of postpartum depression, Um, loss of interest in things. Um, You know, you're not as happy as you used to be things, you know, that make you happier or give you that sense of pleasure that you're not, you just feel like you're just not in tune with that anymore. Um, So, and this is very common too. Anxiety and depression have overlapped sometimes. And so it is possible to experience you know, postpartum depression and have a uh, postpartum anxiety disorder as well. Um, anxiety disorder. Um, and that includes, you know, OCD too. Some moms and dads experience that. 
Um, if you're not feeling like yourself, if you, you know, that's, I think that's one of the main ways to really be able to start identifying that I don't feel like myself. Even that, you know, something as simple as that, you know, that's another sign to really look for. If you're having feelings of worthlessness, you're having mood swings, you know, those are some other signs as well. And then what do, what do you do with the client as far as like what they can, what adjustments they can make in their life? Because, I mean, I know we all have the tendency to just like white knuckle it through. <laughs> like, oh, this won't last forever. Um, but then you're doing other damage in other areas. And suddenly you find yourself avoiding and <laughs> I just can't even look at my kid right now. Um, so what can we do to help overcome some of that stuff? Um, I would definitely cons- I know a lot of women usually have to f- contact with their uh, OBGYN. Sometimes they, um, that, but not every OBGYN is postpartum friendly. I want, and I would say friendly in terms of is their knowledge, not as far as them not, you know, not being able to provide care in that capacity. Um, I know there's been a push for more OBGYNs to screen moms at their postpartum appointments, you know, after having the baby. I know in a lot of lower income communities, a lot of moms get those appointments. Um, so I, there right now is a big push for pediatricians to consult with moms because moms are taking their babies to their appointments. And so the fir- a lot of the first contact for a lot of moms is with the pediatrician. Um, and so that's something I'm really encouraging there be any pediatrici- pediatricians listening to develop a system or a process where you're screening moms as well when she's bringing the babies for the visits. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if, I, if I'm a pediatrician listening to this, I'm like, one more thing I need to screen. It's like, well, no, you don't necessarily have to pull out the sheet, um, but you can do this through a series of uh, questions, right? Just three, yeah. four questions. What are some questions to ask? Maybe not, uh, maybe not necessarily a physician, but family member. Um, you know, friend, uh, relative who knows his things. What, what's, what are some things you can ask that are, you know, not, not going to elicit a defensive response? I think with a lot of family members, sometimes they're like, Oh, this is going to pass. Oh, you're going to be okay. And while I know that a lot of family members and friends mean well, when they say these things, when moms are really going through perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, they don't feel like everything is okay. They don't feel like everything is going to be okay. And oftentimes those statements make moms feel like they're not understood. And oftentimes that is the case. Um, so I think that the more knowledge that family and friends have about this area and ways to support moms, it's going to be really important. Their open-mindedness to, to therapy and mental health, um, and wellness in that area. I think that's where it really should start. Um, and then some of the signs, if you're seeing mom withdrawn, if you see mom not getting a lack of sleep, if you hear her say comments that, you know, about repeatedly, you know, about worried about her own self, worried about the baby, or if you notice the mom um, doesn't seem, you know, attached to the baby, those are some that's when you can say, okay, are you feeling okay? I noticed this or I noticed that I'm really worried about you. Um, I think we should probably go see your doctor or go see someone. I can go with you. So that's like more of where the support system comes in for the mom. Um, I think with COVID and telehealth, that's been a really great thing. I know there are some providers who do in-home therapy for, um, for moms in this, in this field, in this population. So that's something that's, um, 
you know, that it makes therapy more accessible for moms who can't leave their home or can't travel or have a longer healing time as far as like, um, you know, after giving birth. So I think being able to recognize some of those signs as well and knowing what to do with it and not just saying, okay, you're going to be fine kind of thing. There's like the three things I picked up on there. Two have to do with what you noticed, which is um, a change. Uh, yeah. in, in school, we have the Delta it's like, you know, that, that represents the, the difference before and after. So if you notice a change, a, a drastic change that isn't otherwise explained by, you know, oh, you had a long day at work, um, but something more enduring uh, that we can notice. And, uh, and the other one is noticing the, the, the lack of connectivity with, with your new baby um, to, to notice those things if you're going through it yourself or if you're somebody who's observing it. And then the third thing is what I'm hearing from you is it's almost like we should, we as a clinical community should probably create a short list of phrases to use that, or, or to, to phrases we, we pick up on. Right. So like in suicide prevention, you hear people say like, you know, I don't know if anybody would miss me if I didn't wake up tomorrow. It's like, Ooh, there's okay. Let's pay attention to that. And in, uh, in per cause you, you had perinatal and, and as well as postpartum, um, we want to pay attention to phrases that, that the mom or dad, and we'll get to dads in a minute, may utter that may give us a clue that they're struggling. But then we also need like a, a short list of phrases to use that aren't invalidating too. Um, yeah. what, what are, what are some, some phrases you can use? You, you said a few of them like, Hey, it seems like you're not yourself or whatnot. Um, mm -hmm. what else can we use that, that might be helpful? That's not intrusive and also doesn't sound like, Hey, you're crazy. Go see the doctor. Because you know, we're we're still not there yet, right? We're still not yeah. uh, as a community ready to go seek help when we need it. Yeah, it's more of like you know, I'm really worried about how you're feeling. Mm -hmm. um, there's some things you said that worry about me, or I notice, you know, that you you're not as happy as you used to be. Um, you seem a little bit withdrawn. You know, those are some like just really naming the behaviors. And externally coming, you know, expressing a concern that you have about it is a good segue. And I think being able to do that sometimes really helps the mom to open up. Yeah. You know, some, sometimes moms don't really notice it at first. They might feel it, but they may not notice all the behaviors that are happening sometimes. So being able to sit down and really, you know, express the concern that you have. Yeah, crystallizes it. Yeah definitely personalize it and doesn't make the mom feel shame or blame or anything like that. Yeah. I think it opens up an avenue for them to explore it on their own too. It's like, Oh, thank God. Somebody finally said something. Yes. I yeah. have been feeling this way. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's great. Um, as far as dads are concerned, what, what are you seeing with dads? And, I, and I'll share my story if, if you want in a minute, but before, mm -hmm. after, during. Um, sometimes with dads, they, and I haven't, I can't, my, I haven't worked extensively with dads, but I have noticed that some dads also become worried themselves. Sometimes they're worried about the baby. Um, sometimes they have anxiety about entering fatherhood. Um, and I think stereotypically men tend not to be uh, talkers of their feelings. True, true. That's a great <laughs> phrase, by the way, answering fatherhood. I love that. I'm going to steal that and reuse it later. <laughs> And so sometimes a lot of men can feel really disconnected and not feel like they have a community of other fathers that they can go to, um, to really connect. And so, you know, there are dad groups that are out there. Um, 
And I think the one of the most important things to know for parents who, you know, are having, you know, planning to have children, um, have had children or have, you know, a new additions to their families that you're not alone when it comes to this and there is support and it can't, you can, there is healing for it. This isn't something that you just really have to struggle through for a long period of time. And it doesn't always need to look the same either. Um, you know, I, I write for a, a group here called Reno Dads and we try to make that sense of community, offering activities, um, that sort of thing. But I think what I want to dispel is the myth that dads working through their stuff with other dads doesn't have to be this um, hugely vulnerable group in the middle of a bunch of strangers, right? Where you're opening up. Right. It, can, it can just be, you know, uh, going going on a Sunday to Buffalo Wild Wings and watching football with, with a bunch of other dads. And, and invariably over beers and wings, you're going to you're going to share some stuff and then you get some validation. Like, Oh good. It's not just me. Um, so yeah, if you're, if you're a dad listening and you're like, man, I thought I was alone and worrying about this and I'm not allowed to worry cause I'm a dude and dudes aren't allowed to worry. It's like, no, no, don't do that. You're, you're totally allowed to worry. Um, I certainly did. I, I did. I had to be talked off the ledge a couple of times before we even, uh, started trying to have kids. Cause you know, I did the whole, like, uh, the world's a messed up place and I don't want to, I don't know if I want to bring kids into the world. And, um, at one point or another, some, a colleague of mine said, don't you think that, that the, um, the good people in the world have an obligation to, to make more good people? I was like, Oh, Oh, you mean the burden's on me now? <laughs> I don't know if I want that responsibility. There was more anxiety. <laughs> like now I definitely don't want to have a kid. <laughs> But it, it was it was good, and we we did uh, you know my wife and I did our own couples counseling around that period of time. So um, oftentimes you find greater connectivity through that vulnerability and intimacy with your with your mate um, mm -hmm. just by entering into some couples treatment. And it doesn't have to be long; it doesn't have to be super deep. It can just you know be to you know tune up and get you get you facing the right direction. It, it doesn't have to be great you know great effort. Yeah. And what I what I like to do to destigmatize therapy too, um, is to say that a lot of people feel like therapy is just reserved for a severe um, mental health diagnosis, and it's not true. You don't have to have a diagnosis, and right. a diagnosis is not always necessary either. Right. I I wish I wish we wouldn't live in the world where um, insurance was a thing, because uh, I've yeah. said this before that we're we're the only field of the medical profession broadly that still requires you to be broken before you can get treatment in the form of a diagnosis. If we're billing insurance, they require that there's no, you know, there's no pop the hood, check the belts and hoses, uh, three times a year tune up like you get in dentistry or pediatrics, even, um, you know, primary care, they want you to have the annual well person checkup. And we, we still haven't turned that corner as far as insurance reimbursement, which is uh, super unfortunate. I think it only adds to the stigma and it keeps people out of care. So, yeah. You know, maybe maybe part of you know until we get there, maybe part of the the pitch needs to be just just shell out the money. It's whatever it costs you. It's going to cost way more in the long run if you don't attend to whatever's starting to go sideways. Because if it goes really really sideways because it got unattended, um, then it's more expensive anyway. <laughs> so um, you know, take take care <laughs> of yourself now. But part of why we do podcasts is so that people can pick up these tips and hints and insights um, that keep them you know, out of professional maintenance too. Sounds a little weird having a professional counselor or therapist say that. <laughs> think we'd want to make money, but uh, not always, not always. 
Um, talk, talk a little bit, if you would, about your immigration work. That sounds like a pretty heavy lift. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, so before I worked at a, a, an agency that primarily served um, immigrants and their families. Um, and then I was, well, I came upon immigration evaluations. Um, and what those do, uh, they support um, legal proceedings for um, immigrants who are in different types of situations. So, um, for example, VAWA is a Violence Against Women Act. Um, and this one is also applies to men as well. Uh, these are people who have been um, in abusive relationships where their partners um, have threatened to, you know, use immigration against them, have physically, emotionally, or economically abused them. Um, so I do evaluations to um, help their case. It really just, out, not I won't say outline, it gives like a detailed background of their testimony and their experience. Um, and, you know, oftentimes there is a diagnosis um, depending on what the severity um, of the abuse has been. So oftentimes there might be depression, um, a lot of PTSD because of the, you know, the violence that's been enacted towards uh, some of the clients that I've evaluated. And those are really ch um, challenging cases um, it, and, and on the provider side, I think. Um, That's frustrating. There have been, yeah. There have been times I just needed an emotional break. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we get a sense of hopelessness sometimes too. Because, uh, yeah. and I want to ask you this too, because sometimes we have stigmas within stigmas. And one of those is like within the broader mental health profession, PTSD is one of those that hangs out there. It's like, well, I don't, I don't want that diagnosis um, because that means more. It shouldn't mean more. It's just diagnosis is diagnosis is diagnosis. But the, the greater community sees that as something like quote unquote worse. And, um, and then they worry about where that's going to land them if it's going to prevent them from being able to access other services or get a driver's license or a job or pass a background check. And um, my question to you is when you're working with the, the immigrant population, probably mm -hmm. undocumented because they're trying to get mm -hmm. citizenship, um, mm. is there a fear that the very real diagnosis of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or something else that sounds uh, bigger or heavier is going to affect them negatively in the process itself that they're trying to achieve by coming to you? I haven't encountered that. It's um, good. I think, which is a good thing. I think it's just more of <clears throat> like, can my experience be recognized hmm. and support, you know, why I'm in the situation I'm in. So you, you, you're seeing that people just want to be seen and heard. Sometimes. Yeah. A lot of times some people want to be heard. Like, so for example, if you're in, if you're in a situation where like you've been in a, you're a partner of someone who has abused you and use your undocumented status against you, there's fear. So there's like a power and control element with that. And you're afraid of, you know, being deported or being arrested um, and the elements that come with that. So when you know that you, you know, the attorney that you're working with is able to come to bat for you, then the person who's evaluating you is able to help you, you know, document your experience so that you can have a chance at the life that you intended to live, you know, prior to being in this type of relationship, I think is what is like the light at the end of the tunnels, that possibility that they have to really norm to find a life and a sense of normalcy that they're looking for. 
How real is that fear that uh, this the significant other is going to rat them out and they're going to get shipped back? Is it, oh, it's it's definitely real. Really? It's definitely real. Um, even outside, even domestic violence relationships outside of immigration, it, it's still that element of power control where that's where that person is holding something over you in order sure. to control yeah. your decision making. Call your yeah. boss, tell them something bad about you, so you lose your job, become more dependent upon me as you know as the abuser. Yeah, I, that makes sense. I get that. I just didn't know if that was uh, legitimate because my understanding is a little clouded on what constitutes uh, deportation these days. I, I I thought for a while it was just crime commission, uh, but but I guess just simply being here and not being papered is is enough to to go back. So that's a that's pretty serious then. Yeah. Something yeah. for something for everybody else in our profession to be mindful of. I think if we're dealing with somebody who's you know, like I can't, I can't even imagine the, the the struggle that it takes to maintain a semblance of a life in this country when you when you're not here legally, but then you you have to come over that hurdle to even get the help that you need, and in the back of your mind is like, if I go get the help, uh, it could all blow up in my face anyway. Um, that's crazy. Well, here's what happens in some of these situations. At the beginning of the relationship or prior to, you know, the marriage, the documented spouse will say, I'm, I'll help you get documentation. And they're like, okay, great. So they go into a relationship believing that this will happen, and then it doesn't. Mm. And before they know it, they're like indentured servants. And, and, and before you know it, their spouse or, the, or their partner is saying, well, I'm not going to help you get documented because of this or that. Or if you don't do what I, if I don't do what I tell you to do, I'm going to, I'm going to call immigration on you. So what's the protection against that? How, how do we, how do we help that from happening? Cause it seems like, you know, abused person gets healthy, but the abuser is still knowledgeable that that, that person's still in the country undocumented. It seems like they could just like pull that lever at any time. Um, is there, is there something we can put in place like, Oh, Hey, they're, they're in the, process it's it's okay or does that even matter okay. well, i'm not a law expert but what i can say is that some immigrants do have legal protections and which is why this waiver is has been instated in the first place is, is supposed to be a legal protection for those who are abusing the person who uh, the person's undocumented status uh, i see okay do you, you work much with domestic violence broadly or is it mostly in this context um, just just in this context but I have I have a background in with with working um, with with you know some members of the population, um, but I do think that's a different specialty. So, <laughs> yeah, it is, and and that's you know going back to the you know jack of all trades thing from the beginning. It's like it's mm-hmm. nice to be knowledgeable and in, in depth and breadth, uh, but when you can't, we we as practitioners have to be honest with ourselves about where we're mm-hmm. treading. That if we don't have the competency to do it, that could it could not only cause harm to the client, but it could cost us our license if we do something poorly. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> How's it, how'd you come about the, the infertility evaluations in it? And what's that all about? Um, so third party um, reproduction evaluation, a little bit different. Um, that's not something I'm offering at this time. Um, that, Cause that takes a, a completely different training. So it is part of the perinatal mental health um, field but it requires different specialized training and supervision in order to really be able to do it properly. Okay. Um, well, while you're not doing it, <laughs> tell us what it is. <laughs> um, 
a lot of times there there are couples who are who like so as part of the infertility process, some couples may um, have uh, donors, <clears throat> um, either egg or sperm donors, when they're going through the um, fertility treatment process, and so. Um, this process is really important to really knowing like the strength of the couple's relationship, where they are psychologically, um, can, you know, will they be able to mentally be able to go through the process and understanding, um, all the different parts of what the infertility treatment process might look like, depending on what their health concerns are. So it's really couples counseling is what it is, but with a sort of a, a twist and a focus. In a way. In a way, because as part of that process, the you do uh, the, the people who do these evalu- you do, do these evaluations um, have to see what you know measure the strength of the relationship and see how the infertility has impacted each person individually and as a couple. Is that what you're evaluating, or, or what the evaluator would be looking for? Is the the strength of the relationship so it can endure in case like the treatment doesn't work, or it does work, and then you get twins, <laughs> or uh, <laughs> That's, that's funny. We laugh, but it's not funny. Um, it, it, so you're, you're evaluating for strength and appropriateness of fit for the medical intervention. Is that, is that kind of what I'm getting? seems like we should be doing that before we even embark on pregnancy in the first place. Um, I don't know. Cause I kind of agree and I kind of disagree because sometimes with a parents, if you, you know, if you, if you're ready, you want to become a parent, um, I think so. I, I would I, I would say equipping couples or individuals with the support that for them to get through entering parenthood as successfully as possible will probably be the best approach um, because it can sound limiting to other people who may not understand. Right. If that makes sense. Well, yeah, just because yeah, yeah. I have depression doesn't mean I can't have. Do I, I? I won't be able to have a child. You know what I mean? Totally. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 honestly, like. I don't want to make it sound like we're advocating for perfectly healthy people to need to go through this screening process, like driver's license test or something. Um, I do appreciate too, that you mentioned individuals. Cause I think to, oftentimes we think, you know, uh, couples have babies. Well, no individuals have babies all the time mm-hmm. and, and that's to be respected and honored. Um, certainly an adoption for sure. There's a lot yeah. of, a lot of adoption necessary in the world and not enough adoptive parents. Not enough foster parents, really. Yeah. Um, something I want to highlight that jumped out at me. I think if I was counting accurately mentally, you said at least four times something to the effect of the life you want, how you want to feel, what you choose to to for yourself, something in that realm. And it sounds like you're really big on empowering people to look at their internal locus of control rather than the external environment that may be pushing them around to, mm-hmm. to react different ways. Where'd, where'd that come from? Where'd you learn that? I was, when I learned, I think in the, as part of my training, obviously, <laughs> um, I did learn that, um, I really like person centered treatment Yeah. Um, because that really puts the control into your client's hands. Um, and I like to mix that up. So I'm trained in EMDR and brain spotting. So prior to me being trained in those modalities, um, I use, a, and I still use this too. I mix like P, uh, person-centered with cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, I like to use like an integrative approach with my clients. Um, and I like that because it forced the person to think about, okay, what is it do, do I want? 
I have the right to make choices for myself. I don't have to rely on other people to do things for me. And sometimes people grow up with being forced to make decisions or manipulate or grow up with a lot of manipulation or being in those kinds of relationships. Mm-hmm. But they feel like they don't have any control of themselves. They don't, they don't have any, I won't say control. They don't really have any power. They've been, they felt powerless. So I think person-centered therapy helps to give that power back and helps the client tell, you know, tell themselves, I give myself permission to. Yeah. And that's what I really like to do. You, what do you give yourself permission to do? Yeah, for sure. And that, and that sometimes is a real eye opener for people who've never actually even entertained that. It's a little bit like working with youth who, you know, 16, 17 years old and you go, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they're like, uh, nobody's ever asked me that. Like, wow. What kind of crazy dynamic do you grow up in? And it turns out a very crazy dynamic. Um, and yeah. for, for people listening who like your ears perk up, it's like, why is the therapist using the word crazy? Um, I purposely use that. I'm not a big fan of like being the word police on people. Um, we can still use crazy and have it not mean uh, what traditionally it's meant in like, you know, all the fifties the movies with the, the insane asylums. Um, mm-hmm. Things can, things can be crazy. They can be out of control. And certainly we're being raised in a chaotic environment you know, for many, many years is one of those that can be disempowering. And so when you get into the professional setting and, you know, Jessica sits there and goes, Hey, so uh, what's the best life you want to lead? They're like, wow, nobody's <laughs> ever asked me that. <laughs> what do you mean? I get a choice. Oh yeah. It's your life. <laughs> Be very yeah. I like to make therapy feel like it's a choice because it is. So like, obviously it is a choice if somebody decides they want to go to treatment, but in this process, you need, it's like a continual process of giving yourself permission to be. And I really want that. And that is my goal to facilitate that. So honestly, a lot of my question, a lot of times is what do you want to focus on today? Yeah. What's been going on with you? What's coming up on your mind? Cause I don't want to, I can, I, I like to be the, the facilitator or the guide. I'm not the person who's going to be in charge of your thoughts. Right. And, and, and I, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> the, the end goal of therapy is to not need me anymore. Yes. Amen. So I was hoping to you with that. the skills that you need to be able to move through life without me at some point. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, and if you're constantly mindful of the person's right to choose, then mm-hmm. it removes us from the, from tromping on their autonomy too, by creating Absolutely. a dependent relationship you know, the therapy in perpetuity is not appropriate. Uh, violates a lot of ethics. Um, if you wouldn't mind, I want to, I want to respect your time. We're, we've got a few minutes left here. I want, I would be remiss, uh, if I didn't ask you about dealing with communities of uh, people of color, um, mm-hmm. and your experiences with that being, being a person of color yourself and, um, how that affects maybe your walk through the profession as well as your encounters with clients. Okay. Where exactly would you like me to start with that piece? I'm not sure exactly. I think it's just a, a curious topic that, um, you know, as a, as a white man, you know, and basically what is a field founded by white men from, you know, Eastern Europe, um, we don't necessarily have the perspective that somebody who's lived the experience has. And I think my curiosity is just, what do you have to share? Um, is, is it even a thing? Is it not a thing? Um, you know, and where, where should, where should the broader, psychotherapy community be mindful and what what might the listening audience take away um it's a big question i know it's a big ask it is and i'm uh, i do want to make it clear i'm not you know i can't speak for everyone who belongs to you know to communities of color Appreciate or to that. communities specifically yeah. um 
I would encourage a lot of, um, especially clinicians, to be willing and be open-minded to, you know, learning about history that communities of color have, the histories of oppression that communities of color have experienced. Um, it, it, they, they're, and the thing is, I'm going to have to be frank about it. It can be uncomfortable and it's going to be uncomfortable for a lot of people, but in order for you to truly be effective and to truly, if, and, and, and I haven't said this in a clinic, well, in a, in a clinical capacity or situation is this, like one question I've had is like, are you truly a trauma informed clinician? If you are not equipped to treat black people or the communities of color in the therapy room. Um, and if you're going to be a therapist for these communities, you have to have some type of training in racial trauma and anti, you know, anti-racism. You have to, you can't just go in and just think you can sit in your chair or get on and get on zoom and think that treatment is just going to go well. And you just have absolutely no training at all. And therapists who belong to these communities also need training in this area too. You mean so that the, uh, our own biases don't cloud what we're seeing Absolutely. Uh, either by invalidating what's probably universally common or by adhering too much to it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I think that when, I think internationally, when the protest started uh, this past summer, uh, spring and summer, um, I saw a lot of um, therapists who didn't identify as black or indigenous people of color um, and validating uh, just for, for me, the black experience um, of experiencing racism and things like that. And it was, it was very difficult for me to watch as a clinician, seeing another clinician, like outside of the therapist community, I don't accept it, but I expect it. It was hard for me to see that in the therapist community where our responses to what was happening, the, you know, the things that we had to say about what's been going on were completely invalidated. Uh, it was as if some of us were saying we're making up how we feel or really? making up our experiences because some people couldn't identify, never really had to, a lot of people don't have to experience what we've had to experience. Yeah. And I'm not saying it doesn't happen with, you know, non-people of color, but I think it disproportionately happens to people of color. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's an honest way of describing it too. It's not it's not virtue signaling or self righteous just to say, Hey, my story matters. Yeah. And so just for clinicians to say, you know, to to invalidate other clinicians in this way, I, it it was it was very bothersome for me to be honest. Yeah. What were you seeing? What was some of the anecdotal, you know, experiences that you saw that, that were invalidating? Um, so I'm of course I think as therapists we're part of different online groups. And so I've seen some that were saying you know, racism, why, why is this group becoming a political group? We shouldn't be talking about this. We should not be politics. And, you know, we shouldn't be talking about politics in here. And so, like, the first thing that pops to my mind is, like, okay, my blackness is, is a political statement now. And so I have to invalidate that because you are associating my existence with a political concept or a political party. Mm-hmm. And that's completely separate. <laughs> And so, and, and my mind went to, okay, so now what are you saying to clients who are bringing up these things in the therapy room or in your therapy sessions? And that's when I started to, that's when I became like really concerned. I started to get upset because I'm like, okay, wow. So now you're, you're not only causing us harm as your colleagues, 
what kind of harm are you going to be causing the clients that you're seeing? Yeah. You're perpetuating the narrative, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's, it's bothersome because there's, there's a bunch of, in my mind, I think there's, there's a bunch of stuff that goes largely unspoken and unsaid in our profession. Um, I happen to work in the, in the guns and mental health realm and there's stigma there too. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember coming out of school being taught that we should we should learn to be comfortable with the quote unquote sensitive subjects. And the sensitive subjects were uh, sex, sexual orientation, economics, substance abuse. And that was pretty much it. <laughs> it's like, yep. wait, we had the cultural competency class, which didn't do anything really. It was just like. Um, here's some broad stroke information, shove it down your throat and paint everybody with the same brush if they look a certain way, which I found abhorrent. Um, but then it, but then it was like, okay, that's it. We, you don't have to look anymore. And then along comes this, this movement and we're like, Oh, that's uncomfortable. I didn't learn that in school and I don't know what I'm supposed to do about it. Um, to hear you say that, uh, is very illuminating. And, and I think one of, one of my takeaways, there's, there's at least two that are taken away now is one is you're probably not a trauma-informed clinician if you aren't paying attention to somebody's ethnic experience you know um i think that's really poignant very profound actually Uh, i don't know that i've heard it put that way Uh, so i appreciate that i'll get to my other takeaway after we're done here but um we're coming up on time i just noticed (laughs) you've been great um so i'll i'll just say my other takeaway then um it was when you were talking about um, the dads and um, it wasn't acknowledging, it wasn't embracing, it was uh, answering fatherhood. Answering fatherhood, I think, is a, is a huge concept that I had not yet considered either. And I think that's really bold and also profound. Um, but we like to, to end the shows by asking the, the guests to issue one uh, takeaway or exhortation or uh, some new understanding to the listening audience. Uh, what would you leave everyone with if you could pick one or, you know, two? That's a really good question. We talked, we covered so much today. Yeah. And um, it doesn't even have to be anything we covered. I mean, it could just be your personal, you know, like thoughts on life or whatever philosophy that undergirds what you do. Okay. Um, I want to say don't, be afraid of the uncomfortable. I think because, you know, out of all the types that we've covered, there's a lot of discomfort and a stigma of mental health. Um, there's discomfort in having your own experience where you're not feeling emotionally at your best. Mm-hmm. There's discomfort in learning more about other people and how it, you know, how it's impacted your life, the way you've grown up and the different types of views that have influenced the way you think. Um, and I think all of that can really, you know, can be compasses. Don't, don't be afraid of the uncomfortable. Don't be afraid to step outside of your own knowledge base and to be open to things that challenge what you believe. Um, I'm a, I'm in the doctoral program right now. And Good in the you. class, we talk about critical. Well, thank you. <laughs> I mean, one of our constables like critical thinking theory and I really wish this was taught in high school. And one of my classmates said this is more about when you are re- researching different information, a lot of people research information to support what they already believe yeah. instead of researching information that enhances their knowledge from an unbiased perspective. Yeah. And so um, the discomfort can be in doing that as well. So just really truly doing your own work and being able to face the things 
that are hard to do that. Everybody has, you know, does things in her own time, but at some point you can do that. I think that would be really good for your own personal journey is to face, you can do hard things. I do want to leave everyone with that. You can do hard things. And sometimes therapy is one of those things too. Sometimes it is. (laughs) Uh, I have three takeaways now. The other one is, um, put, uh, being comfortable in the discomfort of not feeling at your best. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's something that we sometimes uh, feel like we have to put on our Superman cape and like go, um, do the best, even when we're not at our best. And that's, that's insightful too. Thank you. Thank you for being here. This has been, uh, educational. It always is. I love, I love what I do selfishly. I do it because I learn. Um, and then selflessly we do it for other people to learn. Uh, appreciate you. Um, how do people reach out to you, get a hold of you? I know you're switching your website soon, but are you like on the social media train? I am. So right now, um, you can find me on Instagram at, at the top wellness underscore. Um, I'm also on Facebook, um, at the top wellness as well. And of course my website at the top wellness.com <laughs> at the top wellness yeah. underscore. Oh, there yes. you are. Yep. <laughs> There's an underscore in front of it too. Is the therapy is normal. Is that also yours? That's somebody else. Uh, I have, hold on, let me look over here. You have a new follower now, by the way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> this one is just. What the, under, what the underscore at the, uh, at after. The end, yeah. yeah. No posts on that other one. So I guess you're safe. They're not a threat. Um, <laughs> well, thank you. And on behalf of the Noggin Notes team and the Zephyr Wellness family, I should stop referring to, to Safiso as team. He is family, really. He's like a brother to me, even though we've never met in person. Uh, so on behalf of the families of both Naganotes and Zephyr Wellness, thank you, Jessica Harris, for joining us. And we wish you all great mental wellness. Bye-bye.